verse 1, Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. So take notice, certainly much to be considered, even from that just summarization there of Solomon's early reign. Remember, Solomon came to the throne really kind of in his teenage years, so rather big shoes to fill. I mean, David was this incredible king in Israel, this man after God's own heart, the first king that God himself chose for his people. Remember, Saul was the first king, but uh, he wasn't God's intention or God's really ideal or original design. It was the people asking for a king, and so therefore, basically, their first king was God giving to the people what they wanted. Uh, It was after Saul's failure and turning away from the Lord that God ultimately knew he must be removed and replaced, and it was at that point that God himself then selected and chose the king that he would want for his people with the heart that he had, and that was David. And David was an incredible king, certainly wasn't a perfect king. He had some mistakes and failures along the way, as any human being, certainly no one is flawless, but nonetheless, David was an incredible king in Israel's history. And now Solomon, as a young man in his teenage years, uh, steps into the role of his father, seeking to fulfill the vision of his father and really to, as we'll see, build the temple that was on his father's heart that the Holy Spirit gave to David, the vision for it and the plans and David laid up provisions for it and all those kind of things. Solomon had a short period of time, it seemed, where him and David reigned as kind of co-regents as they were reigning together, but then ultimately David passes off the scene and Solomon takes over full control now at the death of his father. And we're told that Solomon, it says, was strengthened in his kingdom, and notice this was the source of his strength. Verse 1 says, it was because the Lord his God was with him. And that's why he was exalted exceedingly. So again, Solomon's strength, you might say, Solomon's prosperity or success, as you might refer to it, in his role was due to one simple thing, the presence of God. It wasn't that Solomon had great capability. It's not till later in this chapter we're going to read that God endows Solomon with this supernatural wisdom and understanding. So the reason that Solomon was succeeding, prospering, why he was experiencing what he was in his role was because the Lord was with him. It was because he was who God had divinely selected. Remember, David had multiple sons and Solomon was not the eldest. Typically, the eldest son would be the natural successor in a dynasty. But Solomon was who God chose. And because God sovereignly chose him by the grace of God, the hand of the Lord was upon him and the hand of the Lord was with him and God was working in and through him and that's where the blessing came from. That's where the prosperity and success came from, why he was exalted exceedingly in the way he was. In other words, it was the relational connection he had to the Lord that brought the blessing or prosperity or success in his life. And it's as Solomon disconnects from that, as Solomon's heart is turned away, as we'll see in time, he starts very well, but ultimately his heart starts to be turned away from the Lord as he turns towards other things, material wealth and possessions, and his heart gets attached to many different wives and women, and these things lead his heart astray. And someone who began well, 
with great potential. The hand of God was with him. We can see early on he was strong. He was excelling. The Lord was blessing and exalting him. He didn't finish real well because his heart became disconnected from the Lord. So again, what is the key to experiencing long-term fruitfulness and the strength and hand of God being upon our life? Well, it's staying in close relationship with the Lord so that the Lord remains with us and his hand remains upon us. And Solomon, we'll see in these next verses, definitely had a great love for the Lord, even as his father early on in his life. Look at verse two. It says, and Solomon spoke to all of Israel to the captains of the thousands, the captains of hundreds, to the judges, to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's houses. So he brings together all the leadership of the nation. And Solomon, verse 3, it says, and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. For the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that Bezaleel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he had put before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly sought him there. So notice what's being described here. We can see at this time prior to the building of the permanent temple the structure that would be a permanent dwelling place for the people to gather and worship the temple unlike the tabernacle that moses built in the wilderness by god's direction and design which remember the tabernacle they would set up and they would tear down they would set up and tear down it was sort of a portable worship system and wherever they went they would set the tabernacle up and they'd set up all the furnishings and go through all the sacrificial system and the priestly ministry and all those kind of things but then when they would move it would move with them but God always had it on his heart to establish a permanent dwelling place where his people could gather to worship Solomon will be the one to build it as we'll see in the verses ahead of us but prior to that time there was sort of this occasion where for a season things were a little bit disjointed we read here in these verses that the tabernacle verse 3 says that is the tabernacle of meeting with God that Moses the servant of the Lord had made out in the wilderness it says that that at this point in time was actually in the area of the city of Gibeon where the actual ark of God itself that is that again primary or one of the most important furnishings and pieces of furniture within the tabernacle worship system remember that was in the place the rear of the of the tabernacle area the room that was referred to as the holy of holies or the most holy place and the ark was there where the presence of god would be manifest the shekinah glory of god where the priest would apply the the blood of atonement once a year for the sins of the nation and the ark actually wasn't with the rest of the tabernacle all the other furnishings and the altar of incense and the brazen altar and all those things they were a gibeon still but the ark remember had gotten lost for a season of time and taken away and because of that it had been shuffled to a few different locations and when david came to the throne remember what was david's heart what david wanted to do was david wanted to bring the presence of god back to the center of the life of the nation and so David went and got the ark and we saw that in you know, our prior studies in Samuel as well as in 
Uh, the book we read through in First Chronicles where David goes up and he brings the ark back to Jerusalem. And that was David's first step in this whole process of really wanting all of the worship life to be centrally located at the capital city of Jerusalem. But at this point, things are kind of disjointed. You have uh, the ark in Jerusalem with its own tent. David had kind of set up a tent for it. But the actual tabernacle itself that Moses had erected with the altar of incense and the brazen altar for offerings, that was actually all still in another location in Gibeon in that particular city. And verse 5 tells us that that's where the bronze altar was there in Gibeon before the tabernacle. And Solomon and all the assembly went and it says they sought him, that is sought God, there at Gibeon, where the brazen altar was. Again, as they would seek God through the offerings, with the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the fellowship offerings, they would go to the bronze altar to offer their sacrifices there to have communion and fellowship with God. I find it very interesting just the way that as God speaks both in the Old Testament and New Testament, the reflective language of what the heart of God really is for these gathering places of worship. Verse 3 refers to the tabernacle as the place where it was the tabernacle of meeting with God. Kind of reminds you that that's what God's heart is when his people would go to whatever you would refer to as his house. It it was the, the tabernacle of meeting with God, that as they went there to meet with God, to spend time with God, You know, as I read that, it was the place of meeting with God. Verse five says they went and sought him, sought God there. You know, and God help us to always remember that is the heart of God in regards to any house of the Lord, quote unquote, however you want to refer to it, that it would be a place where we would meet with God and we would seek God. That is that, that our, our sole purpose in going wouldn't be to go through religious routines and observances. And, and I know me, we may be quick to say, like, well, I, know, I would never do that. That's, I, I'm, that's, I'm not into religious routines and rituals. But, but very easily, we can almost you know, become just uh, you know, accustomed to going through the motions, any one of us in any church, where out of routine and regularity, we just kind of go through the religious motions and we're really not perhaps inclined to be meeting with God as much as we are. We just kind of pull this lever and push that button. We know when to sit and when to stand. And, and I think even sometimes we have to be careful with even just you know, you know, overly having routine and structure to a degree where we don't vary things once in a while, whether it be in what we do in the nature of our meetings. That's why periodically we'll, we'll try and just do something a little different than the norm just for the sake of, of, of breaking up the monotony a little bit. Sometimes it's healthy to do like what we did last Wednesday night where... No Bible study and and two hour long meeting and just a time of worship and prayer with no real agenda, just praying and seeking God and worshiping intermittently. And there's something about that, that, you know, after meetings like that, it's a wonderful thing for me to hear people say, wow, the presence of the Lord was was really rich at that meeting last night. And I think, yes, that's, that's what it's supposed to be about, that we're meeting with God that we're seeking God, not just going through religious routines and motions of a church service and so forth. And I I like the language that, again, the Holy Spirit would use to describe what they were doing. Verse 6 says that as they went there to seek the Lord at the tabernacle at Gibeon, it says Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, 
which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and he offered, notice this is not a typo in your Bible, a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Now, that really should stagger us to read that. A thousand burnt offerings. Now remember, the burnt offering, as we've talked about many times before, there were different kinds of offerings. The burnt offering was the offering of dedication, you might say, the offering of consecration. Unlike some of the other offerings that they would offer when they would bring their animal sacrifice to the altar, in the burnt offering, the entire animal was consumed and burnt and just completely uh, you know, absorbed in the fire on the altar. None of it was partaken of, none of it was given to the priests and so forth. So the idea there was, Lord, in the same way this animal is being completely consumed in the fire upon the altar, Lord, I just want you to completely consume the entirety of all my life. Lord, like a consuming fire, I just I want to be fully consecrated over to you. I don't want any part for myself I don't want any part for anyone else, Lord. I want it all to be given to you. So it was kind of a, a symbolic act of worship of I'm just fully dedicating myself to you, God. I want to be fully consecrated, fully committed. And it's this offering that Solomon goes here and you can see, as I said, that in the early stages of his life, again, this is just still perhaps in his late teenage years, maybe at most, probably at this point historically, 20, early 20s. And he goes there as the leader of the nation and he initiates offering a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord. Now, first of all, let me say, don't ever, ever tell me that a young person's heart cannot be a flame for God. God, help us that we accept this foolish, satanically inspired mentality that, well, you know, young people, they just got to kind of go through their things and there's a lot of worldly pressures and peer pressures and they kind of got to do their thing and eventually their heart, maybe they'll, you know, when they're ready to settle down, they'll get awakened for God, but they kind of, look, I don't, I don't want to buy into that. That's a lie from the devil to just ruin a lot of young people's lives and just waste a lot of years. I read in the Word of God there were people like you know David and Solomon here who at a very early age, David was looked upon out in the fields as a shepherd boy, as just a young teenager, as a man after God's own heart. And God went and found him and selected him and loved what he saw in his heart when he was just a young man, when he was just a, a teenage boy. And here's Solomon, just at a young age. He leads the whole nation. He goes down there and, and he offers up a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read things like that, sometimes I have to just step back and think, what a demonstration of worship and devotion towards the Lord, most certainly. But how long does something like that take? Consider every animal brought, you know, you know the, the, the cutting of the throat, the animal being bled out, its life being drained out of it, then it being cut up and prepared and put upon the altar and then completely consumed in the fire on the brazen altar a thousand times. How much time did that act of worship take? How much energy and time and commitment was spent? What did that require to offer a thousand burnt offerings where people are saying this church service is too long a thousand burnt offerings i mean really how long did that take i can't even begin to envision if, if you could calculate the pace they could do that at 
But again, there was no sense of concern of a time frame or what it would require. Again, animals as well were valuable in that culture. Understand, people typically, you know, they were herdsmen. They had flocks or herds. Or, or they were an agrarian society where they worked the field. So these were very valuable assets in that culture. So to bring a animal period was a costly sacrifice. Solomon comes with a thousand burnt offerings, a thousand sacrifices. Again, demonstrating, again, the picture here is what did it require of him personally? A lot, but it did, the personal cost didn't matter to him worshiping God and showing his dedication and devotion in his mind that there, there was no issue of it doesn't matter what it costs me this is how much I love God I don't care how much it costs I'm willing to pay the cost because I love God that much I'm willing to express my love to God in that way again how important it is to you know just display his humble dedication to God that he would do such a thing leading the nation that way and express how worthy God is that he would do that. So again, just an incredible demonstration here of this worship offers a thousand burnt offerings and verse seven tells us on that night, that is it seems, again, whether this is the conclusion of this, if they somehow did this in a whole day, that even seems staggering still, at the conclusion of that day, that night, or maybe just in the midst of all of that worship going on, you know, the, the sacrifice, the bloodshed, the, the, the honoring of the altar of the Lord, on that night it says God appeared to Solomon. Well, that would be fitting because what did we say earlier? That the tabernacle was the place where it was supposed to be the place to meet with God. And so as he's worshiping God and pouring out his heart and dedication to the Lord, God shows up for a meeting and God meets with him. It says there, verse seven, that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, imagine hearing this, Solomon ask, what shall I give you? In the midst of that worship and his heart being fully dedicated to God and just offering himself up, God says to him, Solomon, and keep in mind, God's initiating this. He says, Solomon, ask, what do you want me to do for you? What shall I do for you? Now, keep in mind, Solomon didn't do all that act of worship as a way of kind of bribery, like he's rubbing the genie that if he just, you know, keep you know, doing enough that eventually you kind of earn the right for God to give you something. That's kind of the, the foolishness of the modern concept that exists even among the church of kind of, you know, prosperity theology and so forth that if you, you just do enough or you get hyped up enough or you say the name of Jesus the right way or, you, you know, as you kind of do this, that eventually you kind of like God becomes like a genie and then kind of you earn the right to just ask God whatever you want. And it's almost like he's entitled. He has to give it to you because you gave not just your seed offering, but a thousand burnt offerings. And so therefore it's kind of a, if you give enough, then God's got to do things for you like you can kind of bribe God. That was the furthest thing from Solomon's mind. Solomon went there and he just started worshiping. And when his heart was dedicated to God in such a way, God saw that heart. And as a sheer act of just God's grace, God just says something which we really don't have record of God saying to many others prior to this time in the scripture, Solomon, ask me something. What do you want me to do for you? What would you like me to do for you? Again, God is willing certainly to not only reveal himself, but to encounter us and look at just the nature and the heart of God, how gracious. Almost have to consider 
if the Lord were to appear to you or I and to say that, how would we answer that question? What shall I do for you? How would we answer that? I mean, again, in the moment, if the Lord were to show up and to ask us, ask me anything, what do you want? I wonder what we really might ask for. It's amazing to see what Solomon asked for here, and his heart is certainly very reflective of you know, great wisdom. And I think to some degree, his heart reveals why it was safe for God to ask him that. Because God saw what was in his heart. Again, keep in mind, God doesn't randomly just say this to somebody who is just living carnally and you know, disregarding God or somebody who's got a half-hearted appetite. This is a man who's just demonstrated that he wants to be fully consecrated to God, right? He's offering a thousand burnt offerings. And God says, that heart is fully devoted to me. Therefore, that heart that's fully devoted to me God feels safe saying, what do you want me to do? Ask me whatever you want me to do. Because God saw that heart was fully committed to him. And I think God saw that was a good condition of a heart to be able to offer such a thing. So he says, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, you have shown great mercy to David, my father and have made me king in his place. Again, he recognizes God has been faithful. God has done great things. And he says, Lord, you were the one that made me king in his place. Lord, I, I, you know, I didn't go out and, and candidate to be the next king of Israel. I wasn't voted into this position. I didn't do something to try and posture and position myself to get this opportunity. Lord, you made me king. This was your sovereign choice. You put me into this role. He says, you've made me king in my father's place. Now, verse 9, O Lord, let your promise to David, my father, be established. For you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth and multitude, a great number of people, innumerable. The picture is there. Now, verse 10, this is what he answers. What do you want to be given? He says, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this great people, notice he doesn't say, of mine. These great people of yours. These great people of yours. Solomon here demonstrates, God, I realize you have graciously given me an incredible offer. And notice what he begins doing. He begins by praising, thanking God for what he's doing, humbly admitting, Lord, the only reason I'm even in this position is because you. this is what you chose for me. You chose this for me. I just embraced and cooperated with what you determined. And the first thing Solomon does really here is he's admitting his own weakness and his own incapabilities. He says, Lord, this innumerable amount of people, this great people of yours, uh, he, he says, I, I don't know how to judge these people. The idea is I don't know how to rule and, and lead them properly. I'm just a young man, Lord. I lack experience I don't have all the knowledge and expertise and experience that my father had over all the years that he was a king. Lord, I, I'm just, I, I'm deficient. I confess that I don't have the skill or the knowledge or the expertise to lead and judge your people. And Lord, this is a huge stewardship because Lord, these are your people. These are your people. And Lord, I don't, I don't want to mess up because these are your people. 
Now, would to God that more people who were leaders would see people not as their people, but God's people. Because that changes the whole way that you view people and how you would lead people and how you would seek to guide people and take care of people. Whether it's a father or a husband in a home, that they would recognize, Lord, this, this is... This is your daughter, not just my wife. In fact, 1 Peter 3, 7 cautions us about that. It says as husbands that if we don't treat our wives properly, our prayers will be hindered. Now, I understand that. I have three daughters. If one of my three daughters was mistreated, I would want to hinder certain things in young people's lives who caused me to be upset, right? Well, God looks at the marital relationship that way and says to us as husbands, make sure you dwell with her according to knowledge and be understanding. Treat her gently and tenderly as the weaker vessel. And he says, lest your prayers be hindered. In other words, it's like God saying, if you mess up with my daughter, I'm not going to be happy with you. In fact, when you talk to me, I'm just going to ignore you. And again, there's that... In the domestic relationship that we as leaders would recognize this. Lord, these children, you've entrusted them to me. Lord, these are your children, not just... This is a huge stewardship. And if we lead in any capacity, whether, again, it's within the realm of the church or in business or in any role that we have oversight, that we'd realize, Lord, people belong to you. They don't belong to me. Lord, this is just a stewardship you've given to me. And so Solomon here, with that heart and concern... He asked God to enable him, really. If you think of what he's asking, Lord, give to me, he says, wisdom and knowledge. He's basically saying, Lord, I'm asking, please enable me to do what you have asked me to do in service. Help me, Lord. Enable me with knowledge and wisdom to fulfill what your plan and purpose is. Lord, that's what I'm asking. You've given me something to do, Lord, you've given me a role, and so help me to serve and fulfill your purpose and your plan. He desires to be more effective. I love his heart. He just wants to be more effective in helping people. Lord, give me knowledge. Give me wisdom so I can do a more efficient job serving other people. Nothing in his prayer there is, is self-serving. Again, not that there's anything wrong with us you know, asking God for anything to meet our needs. There's something wrong with praying for our needs as well. But again, just the heart of Solomon so reflected there in his prayer. So demonstrated that he says, Lord, give me wisdom and knowledge so I can do a great job here with your people. And just a beautiful example of, again, why that was a safe thing to ask him because Solomon's desire wasn't to advance his own agenda. His desire was to fulfill God's will. That's why his prayer was what it was. Lord, what I'm asking is help me to bring about your will. That's what he was asking. So give me knowledge. Give me wisdom, God. I admit I don't have it, and I want to do the best job to please you and to help your people. In verse 11, then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart and because you've not asked what probably most people would have asked, God knew, especially kings and those in power. He says, because you've not asked for riches or wealth, that is, you know, material gain and financial increase 
he says, or honor, that is that you would be more popular, more famous, more people would know your name, that people would think that you're great and be impressed with you. Oh, wow, Solomon, he's the guy. Because you didn't ask for those kind of things. Or you didn't ask for the life of your enemies, that you could just continue to you know, conquer more and more things and build up yourself in greater ways. Nor have you asked for a long life, but you've asked for wisdom and knowledge, he says, for yourself that you may judge God says my people over whom I have made you king see God recognized exactly what this young man was asking for he says verse 12 wisdom and knowledge are granted to you Solomon that is a prayer that I want to answer Solomon, that is a prayer. You want to be more wise. You want to be more knowledgeable, know how to do things and understand how to fulfill your role better, to take care of people and to do my plan and my will. Solomon, I want to answer a prayer like that. You're going to get the answer to that. Wisdom and knowledge is going to be yours, he says. And on top of that, I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. So he says, Solomon, I'm going to give you wisdom. And we see that in the scriptures. We saw back in the studies of first Kings, God gives Solomon supernatural wisdom, incredible understanding, unlike anyone ever had before. And on top of that, God endows Solomon with all these other things he didn't ask for great wealth and honor and prestige. And God exalts him as a king in his kingdom. And again, this just reminds us, God was pleased with Solomon's prayer and Solomon's prayer was in accordance with God's will. So God not only answered his prayer specifically, but then God heaped in a couple extra added bonuses of things he didn't even ask for. God says, Solomon, I don't only just want to do what you're asking, I'm going to do other things to reward you on top of that because I'm so pleased with not only what you asked, but also what you didn't ask. What you didn't ask. And that reminds me, God's not only pleased at times with what you do pray, sometimes God's pleased with what you don't pray, what you don't ask for, that you could have asked in a certain way and you didn't, but you had a selfless heart and a heart that came in alignment with God and his will, and you didn't ask for certain things, and you did ask for the will of God to be fulfilled, and and God loves to bless that kind of thing because God loves to bless and reward Those who have a heart, not for personal advancement, but to see the kingdom of God and the will of God be done here on this earth. And that's what Solomon's heart was. You know, this reminds me really of the New Testament principle that Jesus lays out in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus says there, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. And he's referring other things to all material possessions and things that we need. He says, your father knows you need all that stuff before you even ask him. But he says, but you seek first priority, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that the righteousness of God. And he says, and then all these other things that you don't seek after, chase for, strive after, try and bring to pass for yourself. He says, all those other things, God will just add them to you out of his goodness and his pleasure and his kindness because he knows that you need those things anyway and to reward your heart as you're seeking after his kingdom God will just add things in graciously and bless you along the way and I tell you Jesus meant what he said and he said what he means and it comes to pass 
take Jesus up at his word. And Jesus, to me, almost gives a commentary on exactly what Solomon demonstrates here. Now, I know if you're anything like me, you may be somebody who reads that in the Bible and you think, well, wait a minute. The Bible also says God doesn't show partiality. So that kind of seems unfair. Why does Solomon get that opportunity? Why does, why does God say to Solomon, Solomon, ask, what do you want me to give to you? But can I encourage you to remember and read John 14 and 15 and 16 and see how many times Jesus says to you and I as his disciples, ask. And whatever things you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. Again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. For whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be opened. And then he goes on to say, if, if one of your children asks for a piece of bread, will his father give him a stone? If he asks for an egg, is his father going to give him a dangerous, destructive scorpion? And then he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts and good things to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? Again, Jesus asks us to ask. Just like Solomon here. Whoa, that's dangerous. I mean, if, if, if he just tells people to ask, 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 what do people ask? But listen, who were those commands given to? disciples he was speaking to his disciples not to the multitudes what's the mark of a disciple the mark of a disciple of christ is someone who's a committed follower of jesus and wants their master's will to come to pass and see when your heart is fully committed to jesus jesus knows that you'll ask for the right things and he is confident enough in himself as is the father in heaven if you ask for wrong things he'll just tell you no right <laughs> that's what he does to me when you ask for the right things he'll bless you he'll, he'll do those things when you ask for wrong things it's not like he's gonna go well i mean he asked you know you just when they ask and they say jesus name you got to give it to him right it's not how it works he's gonna give what's in accordance with his will Look, the reason I point this out, folks, is not to belabor the subject, but to say that sometimes what James says is true. We have not because we ask not. My mentality has always been this as a Christian. I'm going to ask for the stars, and then I'll just accept whatever God allows. But certainly nothing to be lost in asking. And I've raised three children up into their adult years now. They asked a whole lot of stuff. Didn't get it all but they had no problem taking a chance asking once in a while. And I just encourage you as a Christian, God is loving, powerful, gracious, good. Ask. Nothing wrong with asking. Lord, if it be your will, I'm asking. <laughs> just ask. And then just accept humbly whatever God allows. But sometimes perhaps we miss certain things because we fail to realize that Jesus told us to ask, even as he told Solomon to ask, we see it in the New Testament as well. So verse 13 says, Solomon then came to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gibeon, from before the tabernacle of meeting, and he reigned over Israel. And verse 14 says, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,000 horsemen whom he stationed the chariot cities with the kings in Jerusalem. And then watch what happens, verse 15. It says, And the king made silver and gold 
as common in Jerusalem as the stones. Now, if you've ever traveled to Israel or you have seen the land of Israel, you realize there's a lot of rocks and stones, particularly in that area there in Israel. So that's an analogy that's intended to really emphasize something. It literally says that he made silver and gold as common as the stones on the ground. That's a lot of silver and gold. He's multiplied a lot of wealth in Jerusalem as the king. It says, and he made cedars in abundance as the sycamores which are in the lowland. Verse 16, and Solomon also had horses imported from Egypt in Kivah. The king's merchants brought them in Kivah at the current price. And then they acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot as well for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Thus, through their agents, and then they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So notice what the Bible tells us began to happen early on, it seems, in the days of Solomon's reign as well, is that Solomon, and this is again where I said his heart began to get out of tune with the things of God, and a great start never guarantees a good finish. Solomon now gets into, you might say, sort of the horse trading business a little bit. It tells us here, verse 16, 15, 16, and 17, how he was importing and exporting horses and chariots from Egypt. And he was buying them at a certain price through his agents, and he would import them, and then he would no doubt probably maybe do some things, and then he would mark them up, and then he'd export them, and he'd make a profit. And he was enriching himself and increasing his herds and his stalls and the amount of horses multiplying these things to himself. Now, if you remember, if not, you might want to put a note here in your Bible or in your notes. Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells us that God specifically said in the Old Testament law that when a king came to power, because God knew that would ultimately come to pass, that they were not to do what? Remember, multiply gold and silver, horses from Egypt, or to multiply wives. Solomon ends up doing all three of them extensively so already here he's beginning to flirt with violating the word of God from Deuteronomy 17 direct instructions as a king and the reason God didn't want a king a national leader of the people to multiply these things was because he knew that these things would cause their hearts to start turning away from him incrementally that their hearts would be gravitating back to Egypt and the ways of the world and and the wives would turn their hearts away to foreign gods and so forth and so we see Solomon here unfortunately though with great potential and though he was a great lover of God he makes the potential error that anyone can even if they start well of beginning to think in their own mind that somehow it's okay for them to make personal compromises and allowances for themselves and so solomon starts to justify well i mean i mean i'm doing good with god and god's blessing and all this great stuff so i mean i can make a little allowance here a little horse trading on the side a little import export i mean i mean i'm solomon man i mean i'm entitled to a little bit of this and he starts to make little allowances and compromises and thinking wrongly that somehow he's entitled to certain privileges and that somehow he's above even God's word and look I tell you this is a very slippery slope for anybody 
where you begin to think gradually and subtly, you can make little compromises and little concessions and, and you think that you're actually entitled to special privileges and you think, well, I mean, everything else is going well and he's going to start this whole temple building project for the next seven years. He's going to still be building the temple. He's going to still be building God's temple, doing God's thing, but little by little, he's also incrementally in his heart slipping gears and slipping gears and slipping gears and slipping gears. Because he's incrementally justifying and taking little entitlements to himself. And look, folks, the issue at the end of the day really wasn't horses. It really wasn't the wives. The issue was he was showing disregard for the authority of God. And he was thinking it was okay for him to disregard God, that he was entitled to live on a different if you would, level or standard than everyone else. And he began to disregard the word of God. It was a heart issue. And that heart issue is what ultimately led Solomon to really go on a great decline. Very, very dangerous thing we have to be careful of. We never want to begin to think somehow we're entitled to things that in any way give us right to disregard God's authority or disregard God's word. Be very careful. Very careful. Because it always starts with little compromises. That's how it happens, folks. Little compromises. I, I tell you this. I, you have, I have, I have never met anyone over the years of my life who ended up falling into adultery or became, you know, a, 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 a drug addict who just woke up one day and said, you know what? I just, I just think I want to be a heroin addict. I do. I just, I just think I want to be a heroin. So I'm just going to, today, I'm just going to be, that's not how it starts. It's incrementally, incrementally, and then it just snowballs and it just takes over somebody's life, right? That's, that's how it happens. Same thing. Nobody wakes up and just decides they're going to you know, be unfaithful to their... It just incrementally, the devil gradually, he'll take an inch at a time, an inch at a time, and then he just snags and that's what happens to people. So be careful of little concessions in your life. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit when he convicts us at times about thinking we're entitled to certain things, disregarding, well, I mean, I obey all these areas of God's word. I mean, yeah, that Deuteronomy 17 thing. Well, it's, I don't know, just that one passage. But I obey the whole rest of the Bible. Be careful of that. <laughs> you obey the entire Bible. When it convicts us, change. When it shows us we're wrong, respond to what it says. Well, verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Then Solomon determined to build a temple... For the name of the Lord, a royal house as well for himself. So he embraces his father's instruction to build this temple now and starts the process. And Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry stone in the mountains, and 3,600 to oversee them. That is the function as foreman to keep that 150,000 men functioning on task. And then Solomon sent a letter to Hiram, king of Tyre. Remember, he was one of the friends of David, his father. And he said, as you have dealt with David, my father, and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I'm building a temple for the name of the Lord, my God, to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense for the continual showbread, for the burnt offering morning and evening on the Sabbaths and on the new moons and on the set feasts of the Lord, our God. And this is an ordinance for Israel, excuse me, forever to Israel. So he begins to construct a letter now. It's going to be a contract or sort of a, a, a uh, materials and labor contract 
with the king of, it says, uh, the area of Tyre there, Hiram, who his father had already had business dealings with. And he says, look, I'm about to construct this temple. And as you helped out my father, I'm asking your help once again. And he begins to talk about this temple that he plans to build for Yahweh God. He says it's going to be a temple whereby we might worship the Lord and we might give burnt offerings to him. And he says and honor the ordinances that God has given to Israel of what the Old Testament Mosaic law refers to. He says, verse five, and the temple which I build will be great. For our God is greater than all gods. Solomon didn't get the politically correct class. He's just telling a guy from another occasion, listen, we're going to build a temple for our God, the true God, the great God, and he's greater than all other gods. And, and he has no problem just being confident in, in the greatness of who his God is. And he says, so this temple has to be fantastic because it's reflective of our God. Now Solomon's going to say in the next breath, he understands the grandeur of the temple wasn't necessarily really the fact that, you know, anything other than the fact that he wanted it to reflect how great his God was. He's going to say, look, I realize God doesn't dwell in the temple. It's not where God lives, but it's reflective of our God. And so therefore, because it reflected God, he wanted the thing to be awesome. We're going to see, again, like we saw before, it's wood overlaid with gold and all these precious stones and jewels because he didn't want the thing to be shabby because he thought, you know, this reflects our God. And I don't want people to feel like our God is weak or not great. So he wanted it to be a good thing, a great thing, because it represented the God that they served. He said, but who is able to, verse 6, build him a temple? Since the heaven of heavens, he says, cannot contain him. Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Again, he realizes, look, the temple doesn't contain God. God was going to be limited to locality in that 2,700 square foot temple structure. He realized the heaven of heavens can't contain God. You know, God transcends the universe. The Bible says the whole universe, God just spans you know, with his thumb and his forefinger there. God transcends all of that, all of time and eternity. He's incredible. He's immense. But he says, but it's a gathering place for us to come and to express our worship. It's where we come to offer worship and sacrifice to God. Therefore, he says, verse 7, send me a man at once, skillful to work in gold and silver, in bronze and iron, in purple and crimson and blue, who has skill to engrave with the skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David, my father, provided. So he says, look, I need a, a master craftsman, someone who he says is able to do great works in, in crimson and blue and skill with engraving ability with the stones and the wood that will be built in the temple. He says, verse 8, also send me some of the cypress and cedar trees and the algum logs from Lebanon. Now, again, Lebanon was known for these massive cedar trees, some of them eight, nine foot in diameter. So picture a tree eight to nine foot in diameter and upwards to 100 feet or more tall, over 10 story. I mean, massive trees. So he says, send me some of these trees from Lebanon. I know, he says, that your servants have skill to cut timber in Lebanon. Indeed, my servants will be with your servants to prepare timber for me in abundance for the temple which I'm about to build shall be great and wonderful. And indeed, I will give you 
give to your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, so that's over 100,000 gallons, gives you kind of a picture, 20,000, he says, baths of oil, that is olive oil. So uh, he's basically arranging a contract with Hiram, saying, look, I need some master craftsmen. I need some of this great wood that you have there in Lebanon because he says, I need to build this house that will be great and wonderful. And look at Hiram's response. In fact, we'll conclude maybe here with verse 11 this evening. Hiram, king of Tyre, we'll just read this one section, answered back in writing, because this is basically going to become a contract. Again, the Bible reminds, get it in writing. There it is right there in the scripture. Answered in writing, nothing unspiritual or lack of faith about that which he sent to Solomon because the Lord loves his people. He has made you king over them. Wow, what a statement. What a commendation. Because the Lord loves his people and God does love his people, no question about that. And he says to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people, that's why he picked you to serve them. That's why he picked you to take care of them. That's why he picked you to lead them and to guide them. And look, folks, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we have all been made able or sufficient ministers of the new covenant. And you know what? Because the Lord loves people, that's why he's given you and I the privilege as his servants and as ambassadors and as representatives to take care of people to serve people. It's not because there's something so impressive about us or we're so talented or so great. Or Look, there's one reason why God lets us serve people. Because he loves people. And God says, I love people and because I love people, therefore, in light of that, I'm making you this kind of servant of the Lord. I'm asking you to help people in this way because I love people. And you know what? When we keep that fresh in our mind, how much God loves people, it helps us serve with the right motivation. It helps us to serve with the best stewardship, none of this sloppy, agape you know, kind of stuff. It makes us say, Lord, you're a great God and you really love these people. So I should do a really great job in serving these people that you love and be faithful and care for them. God, help us to remember that. Let's stand together. Let's pray and turn our hearts and worship to the Lord and just ask Him to work these things through our hearts.